could we be coming into closure on the issue of remote ballot collection in Cuyahoga County? A federal judge makes a pretty dramatic ruling. That'll be the first story we're talking about today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am with Chris Warnowski and Jane Cahoon, my garrulous colleagues, and we're here to wrap up a week of discussion I hope you guys are planning to get out this weekend. It could be the last nice weekend of the fall. Yes, no. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We got to get out before, you know, we're stuck inside with the gray. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, let's begin. Jane Cahoon, we have big news on the voting front. We may be nearing the end of the saga of the remote ballot collection in Cuyahoga County. What big development occurred Thursday evening? Yes, federal judge Dan Polster not only reopened this case he had dismissed earlier in the week uh, and acknowledged that he he misinterpreted a, a directive that Secretary of State Frank LaRose had issued, he went ahead and struck the directive down in a 26-page ruling saying it was unconstitutional to limit ballot drop boxes and other collection sites, and this placed an undue burden on people's right to vote. And he did not stay the ruling, which means it takes effect immediately, although LaRose is appealing and the appeals court could put put a stay on that and, and halt it again. But this ruling is is quite strong and, and it slaps LaRose in a number of ways uh, the a couple of the sections I thought were really compelling. The, the judge said the the voting rights groups who filed this lawsuit identified a very serious looming problem in Cuyahoga County that jeopardized people's right to vote. Um, You know, citizens who are concerned about not only the reliability of the mail, but, you know, the coronavirus pandemic. And he said the secretary is continuing to restrict boards from implementing off-site collection, and he appears to be doing so in an arbitrary manner. He also said he'd given LaRose every opportunity to address this problem. Uh, they had a hearing on it last month, and he's been unwilling or unable to do so. And he really kind of put it into a stark way when he said that it may be said that 7,900 registered voters in Noble County may find a single drop box location sufficient. But the record demonstrates that the 858,041 registered voters in Cuyahoga County likely will not. Um, and then one other thing, if I could just, if you could just indulge me, you know, we had been wondering like, okay, how did the judge misinterpret? Like, was it the same thing we thought where, where LaRose's directive was, was kind of confusing, um, in that it allowed extra ballot collection sites, quote unquote, outside. Uh, and that included like a property, a block away from the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections. Well, the judge shed a little bit of light on that. He said, if outside the office of the Board of Elections means only outside on the board's premises, then it doesn't permit collection one block away and across the street. Um, if outside the Board of Elections means anywhere beyond the board's premises, which is how the court originally construed it, the directive permits both the site one block away and across the street and the six public libraries, as well as any other site the Cuyahoga County Board chooses or any off-site location another county board wishes to use. So that's where he slapped LaRose about being 
ambiguous. He, he said this leaves the court uh, with no working definition of where outside collection is is permissible. Well, I look, I think I think this case is proven and you can call the rose all qu- kinds of things. You can call him ambiguous. You can call him hypocrite. You know, he said, I, I believe in extra ballot collection points. If only I had a legal ruling that said I could do it. And he's had that multiple times and he fights it and he fights it and he fights it. I mean, he's a villain in this. He's not doing what's in the best interest of the voter. He is trying to impede the Democratic vote. It's really um, quite villainous. And I, I, I hope that when he seeks higher office, this repeatedly comes back because he is the worst kind of public servant. He's not doing his job. The secretary of state's job is to make voting easy. And he's doing everything in his power now. I mean, it's he's just been unveiled by this. He appealed it immediately uh, to be to, to what his motives are. His motives are to be a stooge for the Republican Party and reduce the Democratic vote. And he shouldn't be in office. I mean, he is not doing the job. You could argue this is malfeasance because of what he's doing. So good for Dan Polster. I mean, he screwed this up royally when he <laughs> dismissed the case. And I, we were waiting for him to weigh in. But man, when he weighed in, it was with 26 pages of saying, LaRose, you're full of it and you're going to change it. You know, I hope that even if the appellate court considers this, they don't issue a stay because Cuyahoga County voters need to know. Jane Coon, they, the original plan was for them to open those ballot collection sites next week. So so there's still right. a little time, right? And, and Right. To, October 13th is when they wanted to start it. It doesn't seem like they would have to have a lot of lead time to do that, though, because what they're basically doing is stationing bipartisan teams, you know, a Democrat and Republican at each library who would collect these ballots. I mean, how how hard can that be? Yeah, I know. But if you got your ballot this week and you you don't want to mail it in because you don't want to pay, what is it, 70 cents for the postage and you don't trust the post office and you're dreading driving downtown into Cleveland because of the you know, it's always a parking hassle or whatever, you want to know, can, can I go to a nearby library? And a judge has said yes. The judge has said that should happen. And then the secretary of state, of course, is muddling it up again. Um, shame on him. He should stop this now and allow the vote to to take place. So we'll see what happens. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the coronavirus out of control again in Ohio? Jen Cahoon, the numbers are high. The red counties are high. And what really struck me yesterday was the percentage of Ohioans who live in counties that are either in level two or level three for danger. What's going on? Yeah, that would be 96% of Ohioans living in either a red or orange alert county. The numbers just keep going up every every day. They've been over 1,000 now for days. And Thursday, there were uh, fi- over 1,500 new cases. So in all, we've had 164,000 plus people who've had the coronavirus. And we're pushing 5,000 deaths here. Uh, the positivity rate is up to 3.9. Governor Mike DeWine had said that number had been going down and they were really happy about that. And now it's that's gone up. So we've got 18 red counties now, a number that hasn't been seen since July 23rd, and 58 counties in the orange level. And that's uh, that's never been seen yet. So and we have 88 counties just for your information. but. 
DeWine called it a gut punch. He he said he's really concerned because the weather's getting colder and more people will be inside where where the virus can spread more easily. And he said, again, many of these outbreaks have been traced to things like funerals and weddings. And he cited one wedding in which um, two of the grandfathers of the couple died. And he said, it just absolutely breaks your heart. Well, what's become clear is if you're indoors with other people and you take your mask off, you're, you're in a lot of danger. That The six-foot rule is pretty much bogus, that this is airborne, it's an aerosol, and, and it's one of the most contagious viruses we've seen. And so if you go to a wedding and people are drinking and people are eating, you're indoors, you can get it. And then people in restaurants, they get it. The idea of taking the mask off in any place where there are people you don't know should be paralyzing because that seems like what's going on. And we, you keep hearing of people that are continuing to issue the mask, which it's so sad that the public health officials lied to everybody at the beginning of this pandemic and said the masks don't help because they wanted to preserve the masks for medical officials because it, it created the, the situation of doubt. I mean, there are still people that doubt the masks work. Why? Because public health officials lied to them at the beginning and because the president of the United States, you know, keeps not wearing one. It, but it's sad because if we think about how different it would have been if in January when this became known, right away they said, OK, here's the thing. The best way to prevent this, wear a mask, make it out of cloth, do whatever you can, wear a mask and we'll keep this thing at bay. And we didn't. And so this is scary. I, I wonder what this means for schools. I mean, it, you know, everybody's back in school. Um, you know, and a lot of the kids in the schools have masks that don't fit right. And so right. there's a limited efficacy. And he there. Made, the governor made it clear that that young people spread this thing and, yeah, it's just to more fun. vulnerable people. This is Chris Wernowski. He also, if I correct me if I'm wrong, didn't he make it clear that he has no intention to to order things to shut down again? Right. I mean, he, yeah, I he, he pretty he said, emphatically said that, right? Yeah. He said, we're, we're not shutting everything down again. We got to learn to live with this. And that so, was, you know, I, I think I made this comment to you, Jade, that it, yes. it's amazing how much ground he covers in in these press briefings where, you know, he starts out saying that things are on fire, but then he starts talking about why it's OK to have 12,000 people in the Brown Stadium. You know, it's, you know, he goes from, you know, well, we, we got to live our life. And and it's just like what a, what an astounding distance he travels in in one half hour, you know, <laughs> from from things being burning to the ground to, well, you know, what are you going to do? So, you know, you know, Chris, that's a really good point, though. I mean, because th- we questioned it earlier this week. W- w- there's no science between 6000 fans at the Brown Stadium and 12000. But to allow it to go to 12000 this Sunday in a week when we're seeing these increases you know, to go to a football game. I mean, this isn't about, you know, I, I have an infection. I have to go to the doctor to get antibiotics to, so I don't die. It's to go to a football game. And and we're we're taking that. And you're right. He in the beginning, it's, oh, my God, this is a disaster. And in the end, it's like, yeah, well, you know, people need to take precautions. I mean, I mean he's right that people should wear the damn mask. I mean, that, that just seems like the no brainer of no brainers. And we have all these people that just refuse to do so. But you do wonder about doubling the number in, in the football game and some of the other things that have gone on. Weddings are are a disaster. I mean, we knew they would be, right? You get yeah. together with people you haven't seen for a long time who you love, 
and you drink and inhibitions go out, you know, the max go off, people dance, they do things. And so and it's they're not- allowing like up to 300 people, I think, at, at wedding venues. Yeah, it's crazy. And, yeah, and and didn't he say and and you know because I think this is worth stressing that that the the cases continue to rise at a higher rate in rural areas like that that continues to be an issue. No, actually, what he, he said, said yesterday is that where it had been in one or the other, there is no distinction. It's just everywhere now. now. It's I mean, look, ninety six percent of us live in counties where it's it's on a bit of fire. Well, so that, that I mean, to me, that reveals. I mean. And and maybe I'm making a, a leap here, but I mean, it, this has to be as a result of school. I mean, I, you know, I can't imagine that between colleges and high schools and grade schools and, you know, it feels like, you know, we're sort of reaping the, the I guess, punishment of sending kids back to school and to but the school numbers that came out yesterday, Jane, they weren't that high. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's just a few yeah, hundred no, I, more. Right. Right. We're not seeing that huge spike. So then it's just everybody being irresponsible. Yes, that's about it. (laughs) We'll have to, when Rich Exner comes back, we'll have to have him drill down into like the age groups and and the other, see what we can find out. I mean, I know teachers are petrified. You see it on the social media that, that they're worried that, yeah, because they're kids, the kids, you know, you really think they're going to wear their mask correctly in social distance. I mean, it's, it's pretty much impossible in that setting. And so I, I do think Chris is right that we'll eventually see as the weather gets colder. But so far, it just seems like there are a whole lot of people not wearing masks and being be careful. Uh, people are tired of it. And the governor keeps saying, you, this is going to be with us for a while. Go to the football game. <laughs> <laughs> it's this week in the CLE. Hey, all. Our popular sports columnist, Terry Pluto, is hosting our Medicare Guide webinar on October 22nd. And while most of the people listening to this podcast are nowhere near ready to think about Medicare from themselves, they just might be thinking about it for their parents. The webinar is presented by Cleveland.com and Medical Mutual and will help simplify the complex process of finding the right Medicare plan for your needs. Terry, together with our experts from Medical Mutual, Western Reserve Area Agency on Aging, and Discount Drug Mart, will guide you through the process and answer your most pressing questions. Go to our Cleveland.com Facebook page and click on the Medicare event for more details and registration. What is Ohio's role in the stunning plot by right-wing militants to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer at her vacation home? Chris Ranowski, we are really getting into dangerous territory where people are so opposed to coronavirus restrictions <laughs> that they're talking about kidnapping the governor. Although I didn't quite understand the plot. Once you kidnapped her, what was their plan? But more disturbing, of course, is that Ohio played a role in this silliness. Yeah, this was a very wild and uh, I mean, this is where the road ends for, you know, everything that's sort of been going on with uh you know, these anti-mask groups and these, you know, don't tread on me liberty groups. Uh, Federal authorities arrested several members of an anti-government terrorist organization on charges that they uh, plan to kidnap Governor Whitmer of of Michigan and maybe even kill her, which was sort of alluded to in part of the, the criminal complaint that was released Thursday. And the complaint says that one of their initial meetings happened June 6th in Dublin, Ohio, and a confidential source that was pivotal in taking down the group also attended that meeting where they discussed creating a society that followed the U.S. Bill of Rights and where they could be a self-sufficient organization. Now, 
The complaint doesn't specify whether they plan to live by the original 10 amendments of the Bill of Rights or, you know, the the later amendments that extended a lot of rights to other Americans that don't look like you and me, Chris. Uh, and the affidavit also said they discussed doing so by through peaceful means and through violent means. And several of the members talked about murdering tyrants and taking a sitting governor. And they decided they needed to grow their numbers and encouraged one another to talk to their neighbors about spreading their message. And of course, they failed, and a bunch of them are now indicted and probably face jail time. And I think I think what's worth noting here is that like two of these guys showed up to the Capitol in a Whitmer rally in April, a few days after the president tweeted "Liberate Michigan" over the response to Whitmer's lockdown of the state in response to the spreading of the coronavirus. They were armed. They were in the Capitol. And there's a very viral tweet that went out that showed one of them, maybe two of them standing up in the galley of the the where they legislate. They were armed and they were screaming during the legislative session. And what's worse is that some Michigan lawmakers have actually attended and spoke at at, at rallies where these guys were also in attendance and part of the organization. So. You know, just a few days later, after they were in the Capitol, a similar group of armed men marched outside the home of former Ohio Health Director Amy Acton, who would later resign as, you know, is not wanting to sort of deal with this kind of intimidation so, and fear. So, so let me ask you, are, I mean, are, are these guys somehow convincing themselves that they're like the colonialists before the American Revolution, that, that the government that we have now is basically King George? And that they're declaring their independence and and taking taking over the country. I mean, it's a, it's a bizarre thought process. And you know, I get that through social media, we're not all dealing with the same reality that the people who are in their little world on social media that believe this stuff are believing a whole fictional set of facts. But I mean, we live in a country of laws. We live in a country where where things have operated pretty much the same way for a long time. What convinced them that this was okay, that you could, you could take the governor? And I, I just wondered, is it more they consider themselves like they're going after the Redcoats? Well, you know, to hear some politicians talk about it, it's economic anxiety. But, but really, when you, when you dig down at some of these groups, you know, there's, there's a lot of white supremacy. There's, you know, these are people who idolize Timothy McVeigh. There's a lot of that. And if you're young enough and don't know who Timothy McVeigh is, he's the Oklahoma City bomber. But yeah, but but I think what 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 is also sort of harmful is that, I mean, look at what's going on in Ohio right now. You know, we have politicians who are trying to arrest the governor. So, you know, they have their people in the halls of governments across this country. And, you know, you're seeing you're seeing it get, get even more and more radical. You know, you're seeing, you know, these QAnon candidates. It's easier to feel enabled to do stuff like this when you see yourself reflected in the halls of power. And and they do. You know, you have these irresponsible lawmakers who are saying terrible things and doing, you know, I mean, we talked about it yesterday as being clownish and 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 goofy. But, you know, it is it is goofy, but it's also it, it's it, really serious. It, it, but when yeah. you when you when that miss when that message trickles down to people who are mentally ill people who are motivated by, you know, this yeah. media sphere, this where they don't it becomes fear, very, it very becomes dangerous. very dangerous. Yeah. So, you know, and on one hand, it's, it, you know, we laugh at it. 
On the other hand, it's like, okay, we're, you know, we're reasonable people who well, we're, we're not laughing. Sense. No it, one's laughing in an attempt to kidnap the government. We laughed about the guy's loony logic in trying to arrest right, DeWine, but, but, but the attempt to, to kidnap, I mean, they were rehearsing. They had gone. I mean, this yeah. is, this Can is I jump in here? Yeah. Go ahead, Jane Cahoon. This is Jane Cahoon. Uh, we did ask Governor DeWine about this at his briefing on Thursday because of this Ohio connection. And he said the first he heard about it was reading about it in the news, which which was interesting. He was unaware that the FBI was looking at these meetings that took place. And we also asked him if he ever thought he was in jeopardy. And he just he said, you never talk about security. So he, he really wouldn't go. There. Well, he's in jeopardy. I mean, there's clearly yeah. he's in jeopardy. If they're going after Whitmer, there's people thinking right, they're I mean, going after him. So I hope he has armed people. very good security. Well, you know, anyway, we got to we got to move on. Kyle Rittenhouse has killed people. And, you know, that, that's where this goes. And, and so we will move on. <laughs> it's this week in the CLE. What's behind the bitter zoning battle that has divided many of the people in Pepper Pike? Chris Ranowski, reporter Eric Heisig, did a wonderful job looking at one of the quintessential kind of American beefs, the battle over zoning of property and sprawl. Uh, it's, it's a terrific story. It's on Cleveland.com and it's running in the Plain Dealer, I think, Sunday. What did he find? Right. So there's this this big uh, sort of 68 acre tract of land owned by a behavioral health services nonprofit known as Beachbrook. And there is a younger Pepper Pike resident, a, a guy who sort of left and moved back home here to, you know, live in this kind of bucolic suburb with his family who decided that he wanted to buy it and try to develop it into this mixed use sort of you know, kind of Pinecrest, Crocker Park sort of development where there's a mix of retail and and homes and and offices, and it became a re- a really 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 contentious battle over you know this this very very big piece of land that that that's there that some residents sort of want to turn into a park, some people just want to leave it alone, but it's really sort of divided the community and. There's actually still a ballot measure that that's coming up in November to actually rezone this property from its current zoning designation to mixed use, which a lot of people are upset about, despite the fact that the uh, the, the developer got kind of exhausted by the fight and decided to pull out. The the developer whose name is uh, Brian Stone, who is, had a company called Axiom Development Principle. Um, said that, you know, he's he's been the subject of of harassment and intimidation. And he basically said, and, and this is a direct quote, that we will not move forward and invest time and energy on an idea that has been completely removed from the realm of civil discourse. You know, he said he's had condoms left at his home. He's had he's had people call him and harass him and his family. But a lot of people in the Sony suburb do not want it to change. You know, if you've ever been the Pepper Pike, um, uh, if you haven't been, it's it's actually one of the richest communities in Ohio with a medium household income of one hundred and ninety three thousand dollars. And and a lot of the people who live there moved there because they don't you know, they don't have sidewalks there. You, know, you can't even walk in front of some of these homes, you know, down there um, and they want to keep it that way. This is the the classic not in my backyard kind of story and and, and well, it's also a self-determination story who do we want to be as a community 
you know, this is a piece of land that's not zoned for the use they want. It's, mm-hmm. That's not what it's set aside for. So they do need to seek permission from the community at large to do what they want to do. And, and the community's having a, a very big debate about it. But, but you do, communities do get to determine who they are. The danger is, is if you unreasonably deny a landowner the ability to use their property to its best use, you can end up in court and lose. We had a huge case of that in Mayfield Heights years ago where the, the developer won big time and Mayfield paid a lot of money because of uh, its refusal to allow it. I, I just, it's just fascinating that they walked away after spending all this time on it. And Beachbrook, they need the money, right? The, yeah. Eric Story said this is their biggest asset. And to continue their good work, they do good work. They need the money. And now they're not going to get it. Right. Um, and, and I think what's interesting about it is that, you know, this would have just been decided by whatever happens at this election. You know, there's no, like, I don't see the need for all of the intimidation and harassment. Just, you know, just let the vote. You're right. Let the voters decide on this. And these things devolve into this childishness. And it just, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of entertaining, but it's also just kind of like, all right, you could have just waited and voted on this and, and let your voice be heard in that way. But I guess, you know, harassing a guy who's trying to develop something is, is the better way to go. Yeah. I, I, I guess I look at it a couple of ways though. I mean, at least the community's engaged. I mean, there's so many times where people are not engaged in what's going on in their local community. And yeah, clearly this went over the edge. They shouldn't be doing this because you're right. There's a simple path. Vote. Right. If you don't want it, vote against it. If you want it, vote for it. It's not really that complicated, but it does reflect engagement. I mean, Eric, Eric Sturry said the battle played out in yard signs and, you know, it's yeah. just a cool thing. So anyway, it's a good piece. People ought to check it out. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does Paul Hoynes worry that the Cleveland Indians might be back to the days when they have to trade players just to make payroll? Jane Cahoon, we don't usually talk about sports on this podcast, but this was a striking story. Paul Hoynes sat with uh, Paul Antonetti, uh, Chris Antonetti, Chris Antonetti, to talk about the the future of the team and its financial condition. And he was Paul, long time, long time Indians writer, was shaken by what he heard. Why? Yeah, you did have to ask me about this depressing news, knowing what a big fan I am. That's why uh, you're the one. <laughs> yeah, Hoynesy uh, reported on this postseason meeting that reporters had with Indians executives, including Chris Antonetti. And Hoynesy said it took him back, you know, when Antonetti started talking about the financial losses that Major League Baseball and the Indians had incurred because of the coronavirus pandemic. He said it took him back to the 60s and 70s when the Indians sometimes had to make trades to meet their payroll. And uh, he described Antonetti's words as chilling. One of the things he said was the reality of the finances in baseball for 2020 was the industry lost billions of dollars. And as a team, we lost tens of millions of dollars, more than we expected. So that puts us in a really difficult financial position that will take us years to recover from. He said, you know, they couldn't sell tickets. They didn't have concessions. They didn't have the parking. They, their corporate sponsorships were were affected. Uh, you name it. So you know when you when you drill down into this, you think about somebody like Francisco Lindor, who who can be a free agent after the twenty twenty one season, and you know whether we're going to keep him and 
we acquired um, Cesar Hernandez, who's done a really good job, but, you know, who knows if we'll be able to hang on to him or Carlos Santana or Oliver Perez or Brad Hand. You know, he said the possibility of them returning to Cleveland for 2021. You know, you got to wonder about that. So it's, as I said, it's all really depressing. No, the one thing that's not depressing is baseball will be able to say not a single fan was infected by the coronavirus by attending a game, something the NFL may not be able to say when it comes to the end of their season. So there's a there's a benefit to how baseball did this, but it's frightening that they are so crippled financially. These smaller market teams like the Indians really do count on ticket sales and hot dog sales and popcorn sales and all that other stuff and they didn't get it. So we'll have to see how this plays out. It sounds like they will not be improving in the off season. They will be getting worse. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for another discussion of the news this week. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. It's a pleasure talking to you guys every morning. It's really one of the highlights of my day. Uh, we we will return on Monday when you must have a pretty dull day. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. The crowd keeps getting bigger. We'll be back Monday. Mm-hmm.